All right. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, please, to 1 John chapter 2. Today we step into chapter 2, and a part of me regrets not being able to simply continue into the context of chapter 2 in our last message on 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10, because they are so intimately linked together, uh, and, and in some senses I'm in a little bit of an in-between between what I want to get through to in 1 John uh, 2, 2, which will take the next couple of weeks, and what we were talking about in 1 John 1, particularly verse 9, about confession. But confession needed our focus, and 1 John 2, 2 needs our focus, but we also have this verse 1 in between, and there's a few things that need to be said about that. So, the link is very strong. Uh, This is one of those chapters where the chapter break, uh, which, by the way, the chapter breaks are not inspired, right? God did not give us the chapter breaks when he inspired the Word of God. Those are put in by man in order to categorize, in order to organize, and such. And so, remember that. And this is one of those places where if you were uh, doing a reading plan and your reading plan is read three chapters a day or whatever the ca- case may be, and you end up stopping at the end of John, 1 John chapter 1, you are stopping quite in the middle of a thought, in the middle of a context. Uh, of course, that's okay as long as when you pick back up reading, you remember where you were and what was being said before. So what I'd like to do today, because we are stepping into a context, is I'm going to start reading right back in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and then we'll read the first two verses of chapter 2, and then we'll, we'll review, do a little bit of a review of our context, and then uh, jump into some new material. So, Bible says in 1 John chapter two, uh, 2, 1 John chapter 1, excuse me, beginning in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, so let's follow this message as John is giving it. There is this thing which John, among others, has seen and touched and handled related to of the word of life, right? Related to the word of life, who who is Jesus. And that thing, he says, is eternal life. Something which is promised, of course, in eternity. Something which we are looking forward to one day, but is not just something for eternity, but is something that can be lived in today. And John writes this so that they, the readers, can join him in this fellowship with the Father and the Son. The ultimate goal being that they would experience fullness of joy. 
Now, the basis for this message, this basis for this message of fullness of joy through fellowship is that God is light and in him is no darkness. That means that if we want to be in fellowship, we must be walking in the light. You cannot be walking in the darkness and be in fellowship with God because God is light. Outside of light is to be outside of God. There is no fellowship with God outside of God. And so if we say that we have fellowship with God, but we are walking in darkness, we are lying and we do not the truth. So then how do we rest in fellowship? Oh, well, no, not, not just yet. We are also lying if we say we have no sin, right? So we're lying if we say that we walk in darkness, but do not the truth. We, we lie if we, if, if we uh, excuse me, we, if we say we walk in the light. No, if we say we have fellowship, but we walk in darkness. There we are. But we are also lying if we say that we have no sin, because all men are sinners. So we're lying if we say we have fellowship, but we are sinning. We lie if we say that we have no sin or that we do not sin. So we rest in fellowship then, not through being sinless, though sinless perfection is a provision that was made by Christ on the cross and him giving us the Holy Spirit of God. Sinless perfection is, is provisioned, but because we live in these bodies that are still mired by sin, still mired by weakness, still mired uh, by temptation, we are going to sin. So the solution is not just, well, just stop sinning. Yes, but no, right? Much to the contrary. The solution is that we walk in the light. We walk and we follow Jesus. We do not sin. And then when we do sin, we confess our sin. And when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we live in this sort of balance, where we recognize we're sinners, but we don't live in our sin. We don't accept sin as, as the norm of the Christian life. We pursue perfection. We pursue righteousness. We pursue holiness with all our heart and all our soul and all our might. But we do not live in the guilt and the shame of the reality that we, this side of eternity, will not measure up to that perfection and we don't have to live in that guilt and that shame because the minute that we sin, we can acknowledge that sin, we can confess that sin, we can be forgiven of that sin, and then be ushered back into the light so that I can, though I won't be living in per perpetual joy or, or constant joy, constant fellowship, I can live in consistent fellowship, consistent joy through obedience and confession. And that brings us to the continued thought in 1 John chapter 2, where verse 1 says, we'll read it again, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Uh, lest we think that John was writing this to give us an excuse to sin, lest we think that as John is writing this, saying that we are going to sin, that we are sinners, that we are going to sin, and that confession is there for our sin, lest we say, oh good, I have confession, therefore I can go do that sinful thing, because then I can just confess it. John says, no, I'm writing this that you sin not. Right? And notice the first thing of note that I want us to see here is how John references his readers. Now, this is the first time that John has said anything 
about his readers so far in the epistle. Other than making the previous distinction between us, that would be John and whoever was with John, maybe some other teachers, as we start to contemplate the possibility that John is writing 1 John specifically to counteract false teaching that was going around within um, the, the whatever group he was writing to, right? Um, other than making that distinction between us and you, meaning he was writing unto some other people, obviously a different putting them in some sort of different category, seemingly into the category of those who either were not experiencing fullness of joy or were at risk of falling short of fullness of joy because they were submitting themselves to antichrist teachings as it related to the character of Jesus Christ, the nature of Jesus Christ, and even the nature of what it means to walk in the gospel. And that's the only distinction we've seen so far is this distinction between us John and whoever else is with him, and you, the readers. But now we find a first address to these people individually, calling them my little children. And this is, in fact, helpful and insightful. Now, we've maintained throughout the epistle any number of reasons why we believe that John is not talking in First John about how to be saved, or even how to maintain one's salvation, but rather how to live in the fullness of the salvation that has been purchased for you and that you have received. And we've given, of course, all manner of reasons as to why. Uh, one of our primary reasons is that First John parallels John 13 through 17, which is Jesus speaking directly to his disciples. The fact that his announced purpose is not that they would understand salvation, but rather that they would have fullness of joy through fellowship, a different standard altogether. But here we find another evidence of that same conviction. When we read my little children, our natural interpretation right? If you just read, if you're reading a letter and that letter says, my little children, the natural interpretation is that John is writing to his kids. That's what children are, right? They are your kids. But as we look at the usage of this term in the Bible, we find that this term is used in a very different manner biblically. So the Greek word translated here, little children, is used nine times in the New Testament. Seven of those nine times it's used here in 1 John. So it's always referencing the same thing, right? So that doesn't really help us understand the reference. But there are two other times where this word is used. And I want to show you where those two times are found. The first is in John 13, 33. Jesus speaking, he says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, and then he continues. The second time we find in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, where Paul is writing and he says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Now, with both of these, obviously you have only been given a very little snippet of a very much broader context. Feel free to go back in the context and read and make sure I'm not doing damage to the context. But even within the simple single verse context there, I think you can notice something unique about each of the usages of this term, little children. They're both spiritual references. Not biological children. The disciples were not Jesus' biological children. We're pretty certain of that one. Yet he called them my little children as he was speaking to them of those things. And lest we uh, overlook it, did you notice what chapter of John we found it in? John, I, I'm past that slide. Say, Pastor, you're past that slide. 
John 13, right? That was the first chapter of Jesus referencing, directing his, his, his teaching to his disciples, right? Those who were his And that's what John 13 through 17 is about, that intimate teaching of Jesus toward those who were already his. And so that reference is quite clear, used spiritually, not biologically. And then the second reference, of course, is Paul. And we have two thoughts there. First, of course, is Paul also was unmarried and did not have any biological children. But beyond that, notice what he says. He says that he is writing unto his little children, whom he is travailing in birth again, until Christ be formed in them. Now, the idea there, if we followed that context in Galatians, that now, now e- even if Paul had biological children, he's not the one travailing in birth for those children, right? Uh, that's not how that works. So we know that this is not speaking biologically here. This is speaking, Paul, speaking of the fact that within the Galatian church, there were threats upon the spiritual accuracy and clarity of the gospel that were, were being presented to the Galatian believers. And he says, I am having to reforge the true gospel in you among these who he called his little children, those who he had led to the Lord and whom he had taught. So we find here in both of these cases that my little children is a spiritual reference. Thus, when we come to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, and we ask what is happening here, are these John's little children, we look back and we say there is good precedent to understand biblically, contextually, as the Bible uses this term, that we're not talking about any sort of a biology here, but rather we're talking about those who were believers— and who John saw as believers for whom he was responsible. And quite possibly, not just for whom he was responsible spiritually, but quite possibly those whom he had led to the Lord. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's a real possibility. But either way, John does feel as though he has some spiritual responsibility to these people, and that they are those who, by relationship to, by, by virtue of the fact that he calls them his children, they, he sees them as having a spiritual relationship with him. And thus, if they have a spiritual relationship with John, then they are believers. So once again, we are convinced through the language of the text that John is not writing to a group of people whom he is, unto whom he's evangelizing, but rather to a group of believers, quite possibly by using the term children, and we'll see this a little bit later in, first, uh, in, in this chapter, in chapter 2, Quite possibly meaning that he was speaking to young believers, immature believers, something to that effect, believers who had a lot of growing to do, but believers nonetheless. And in this case, we would see, and will all the more as we work through the book, that there were in fact others contending for the minds and the hearts of these young believers. False teachers were attempting to convince these young and impressionable believers that they will live free from sin, that they had never sinned, or that they could abide in darkness and still walk in fellowship with Christ. And John has already hit all three of those things and said, this is not what Christ teaches. And so John is writing to these young believers in order that they would relate themselves properly to sound doctrine relate themselves properly to the Lord Jesus Christ so that they could have fullness of joy. And we've talked about this quite a bit already, 
It is the theme of the book. And I've said many times, if you're not experiencing fullness of joy, that is a good sign that there is something wrong spiritually. That if you don't have that abiding and overarching contentment that is in your life, regardless of circumstances given by God because of your relationship with Him, then there's, there, there's something wrong. Now, that doesn't mean you're not a believer. That doesn't mean you, you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior. But it means that there is something hindering your fellowship with Christ because in Christ, there is fullness of joy. When you're walking in that fellowship, the Spirit of God will be producing fullness of joy. And as we go through the book, we'll see those things that might be hindering you. But this is not just for you. This is John writing to another group of believers saying, this is what you should have. And by God's grace, we can do this as well. You know, there are a lot, one of the frustrations, I was talking to Brother Schrock about the nature of, of ministering in Cote d'Ivoire uh, this afternoon. And I had mentioned to him, I, I was asking him, is Cote d'Ivoire, in a sense, a little bit more timeless? And what I meant by that is, uh, I get this vision for a time in the past. When pastors, uh, and, and it's not, and this isn't just being made up in my head, this is how it was, where pastors were pastors in a small town. And they had their group of people, and everyone knew everyone, and everyone was very local. And the pastor could get up in the morning, and he'd make his rounds, and he'd visit all of his parishioners, right? And he'd go from parishioner to parishioner and he'd see them all and one would give him eggs and the other would, would give him a loaf of bread and, 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 and he, would, he would sit with them for a while and he'd go visit uh, uh, you know, old, old, lady, old Lady Jones at the top of the hill who's lived in the house for 45 years and, and, and she's a widow and her husband has passed away and you'd go and visit her and, and then you'd make your rounds and then in the evenings you'd study for your sermons and then you'd give those sermons on Sunday and you'd do it all over again and, and, and in, in a sense that, that, that ministry is a bit timeless, right? It's not a scheduled ministry. Nowadays, if you want to talk with me or if I want to talk with you, we're, we're comparing calendars and we're, we're niching out 15 minutes here and 30 minutes there. And, and there's a whole different aspect to ministry now uh, where, where, where there, there's, we are bound so much by the calendar in our time and in our place. And we're, we're unbound also in that most of you live quite a ways away from me and quite a ways away from this church. Which means we're also unbound in that sense where I can't just walk to all of my parishioners' houses in, in, in the course of a week and knock on your door and say hello. But one of the other things about being a pastor in modern times, beyond just uh, these ideas, is that you also have access to a tremendous amount of preaching. I am fooling myself if I think that I'm the only person you're listening to on any given week. As a matter of fact, for the three or so, four, four hours that you could get of my teaching in any given week, you could double or triple that in a week with podcasts and YouTube and everything else that's going on. And I mean, we don't, we're not averse to those things. We're on YouTube and I've got a podcast. And so those things are, are good and helpful and people are listening to me and I'm horning into some other pastor's ministry too. But what that means is that I don't have any sort of overarching, I'll use the word control, but I don't even know what you're hearing, much less have any control over what you're hearing. It used to be that maybe some false teacher would come uh, rolling into town and all the pastors would crane their heads like, who's this guy? 
And they'd go and they'd listen to him and, and they'd hear what he has to say. And then maybe they'd have to preach a corrective message on a Sunday because of what he said when he was up there on his soapbox in the middle of the town square. But now you've got thousands of preachers you can listen to saying hundreds of different things about any given passage. You could go to dozens and dozens of dozens of messages on 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 this week and hear any number of things. So then how do we know what's right, what isn't? What can I instill in you that can give you some measure of confidence when you're listening to someone else and they're saying, hey, you know, they have a lot more insight into the Greek than Pastor does or they have a lot more insight into the history than Pastor does. Pastor didn't give me all that context. What can I give you? I can give you this. Are you living in fullness of joy? I can give you that. And you can take that with you. And you can know how to relate yourself properly to these teachings by whether or not you are experiencing joy in them. And that's what John is doing in this book. All of these various teachings that they're hearing, and we'll, we'll see some more correctives, but he says, I want you to have joy. And if you're not having joy, if you're not living in that joy, if you're not finding that in what you are being taught, you are being taught something wrong. Because that is what Christ produces when you're rightly related to him. These other systems which compel believers to never sin or to believe you have no sin or to believe that you can abide in darkness while still having fellowships, these are systems of bondage. They're built upon lies. They lead you not to freedom and so to joy, but to guilt, to shame, to judgmentalism, and ultimately to confusion. And if those are the things that the doctrines that you are hearing are leading to, you know that those are not the doctrines of Christ because those are not the things of Christ. Each one is false. Christians who fall into these convictions will spend their lives chasing shadows. And many Christians do fall into these systems. And they'll spend the rest of their lives trying to figure out why it's not working for them when it works for the guy in, in, behind the pulpit. In the same way that a bunch of teenagers today are spending their lives wondering why their life doesn't look like all of the people they're following on Instagram. Well, the reason why is because they snap that picture with their hair perfect and their smiles on, and then they go back to living their miserable lives. But that's not authentic. What we're looking for is authentic Christ. And we know when we found it, because we'll have fullness of joy. So each one of these systems, these false systems that was being taught that John is warning against, these Christians will spend their lives chasing these shadows, trying to live up to impossible standards or pretending to live up to those impossible standards. But John says there's another way. So he calls them his little children, says that there's a relationship there and also shows some affection for these these, these, these readers. And he exhorts them to realize this thing. They are sinners. You are sinners. You are going to sin. You can receive forgiveness through confession. But lest any of you think that this means you have a free pass to sin with impunity, as John reasons with them in chapter 2, verse 1, he tells them that that's not what he's telling them. He tells them these things not to excuse sin, not to, not, not to alleviate 
from them the compulsion to do right. Much to the contrary, he says, I am writing these things unto you that ye sin not. Sinning is bad. We should not be doing it. Sinning is going to happen because we live in these bodies of weakness and of temptation. That is why we have this wonderful provision in Christ whereby we can confess our sin and he is faithful and just to immediately forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to bring us back into fellowship so that we can then go back to not sinning. To live determined to obey Christ, determined to walk in the light as he is in the light. But don't fool yourselves into thinking that you will achieve sinless perfection while you're in the body of this death, while you have these feet of clay. But we don't need to fool ourselves in this way because of confession. And notice this as well. The Bible does not speak of confession and advocacy in terms of earthly moral mediators. Notice what John goes on to say. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When you sin... There is one standing between you and the Father, mediating for you as it relates to your sin. Thus, confession, being confession to the Father in the name of the Son, coming to the Father and saying, in the name of Jesus Christ, who has taken my sin on the cross, I ask for that restoration of fellowship, and God is faithful and just to provide it, because Christ is that mediator, and Christ is the mediator. You will never find in the Bible... Confession and advocacy in terms of earthly, mortal mediators, but only the great divine mediator of Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 tells us, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The Bible speaks of no mortal human mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ is the final mediator sitting on the right hand of God who ever lives to intercede. We enter into the presence of the Father through the veil that is the flesh of Jesus Christ, not into the presence of one of God's earthly representatives. You are not called or compelled to confess your sins to me. You are not called or compelled in the Scriptures to confess your sins to any other spiritual authority. You are called and compelled in the Scriptures to confess your sins to God. We come into the presence of God Himself and we come boldly through the blood of Jesus Christ. And to this end, we, we do reject the idea that we should receive absolution and confession to men, a priest or otherwise. Now, that being said, there is precedent in the scriptures for the idea of confessing, confessing a sin before men or confess, confession of sin before men. And that's in James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, this is within the context of healing. Is any man sick among you? That's where that, that context begins. In the context of healing and of restoration, this verse is not speaking in the context of your relationship directly with God. It is speaking in the context of spiritual fellowship and physical healing and wellness. That's a conversation for another day. That's a context for another day. But as it relates to what we're talking about this evening, confessing your sin, the scriptures say confess these sins to God through the mediating ministry of Jesus Christ, who is our advocate. We have an advocate with the Father 
And that advocate with the Father when we sin is not me, not your pastor. It is not one of the saints of years gone by. It's not Mary. It is not one of the angels. It's not Michael. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is our advocacy. And it is the only thing that can advocate for us before the throne. That when we sin, the only thing that can advocate for the reality of our, of our justification and our righteousness in the midst of our sin, the only thing that makes sense as it relates to the means by which we can be forgiven is that God can look at us and see the blood of Jesus Christ and know that we are forgiven. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous. That is our advocate. And so we come to God in the name of Christ. We confess our sin. We plead the blood of Christ on our behalf. We are forgiven. Not because God is a nice guy. Not because we have flattered God with our humility and we've made him feel good. And so he's feeling better about things and he'll, he'll, he'll wipe it away. We are forgiven because when we come in the name of Jesus Christ and we appeal to the blood of Christ, God says, you're right, the debt has been paid. And so you're forgiven. When we go to the Father and we acknowledge that fault, as we talked about last time, we give no excuse but state as David did in his great psalm of confession in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood hath ransomed me. And when we plead the blood of Christ, which was shed in forgiveness of our sin, God is, as we studied last time, faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus Christ, the righteous, our great advocate. Now, there's one more thing to talk about before we move on from this. John says here that Jesus Christ is our advocate. And this is a somewhat fascinating statement. Let me tell you why. Once again, I'm going to take you to the Greek for a moment. The Greek word translated advocate here is used five times in the Bible. Only one time in 1 John and four times in the Gospel of John. And all four of the times that John used that word in the Gospel of John, so John the Evangelist is the only one that ever used this word, right? All four times it's used in the Gospel of John, it's translated comforter and speaks of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus in the life of his followers after his departure. So if you recall in John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So Jesus said it was good. It was expedient that he would go away because when he goes away, he could send the one who would be that comforter, that advocator for them on this earth. He would be the one to teach them all truth. He would be the one to convict them of sin. And he would be the one that would... Uh, that would mediate for them with groanings that could not be uttered, right? Empowering them unto ministry. But then we come to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, and John tells us that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is our advocate before the Father in the heavenlies. 
And in this partnership, and this is what we see here, a partnership, the comforter being our advocate with us and Christ being our advocate before the throne of God. In this partnership between the Holy Spirit of God, our comforter indwelling us and leading us unto the truths of Christ, and then Jesus himself, our advocate, sitting at the right hand of the Father, we see this beautiful pairing that gives us insight into the work of all three persons of the Godhead and on our behalf. That the Spirit of God is active in our lives, leading us unto Christ, in our lives, mediating in our prayers, that Jesus Christ is advocating for us before the Father as the basis and the righteousness by which those are even valid. And then, of course, the Father accepting these things by virtue of his love for his Son, Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God comforts and intercedes. The Son of God advocates and intercedes. All working to reconcile us and to bring us into a thriving personal relationship with the Father that leaves us in a place of joy. And to this end, let me say this, by way of application, we're not quite done yet, we'll have a little bit more to say, but by way of application this evening, I'll get to the application, then I'll get to a little bit more. It's like bonus. I've given you a bunch of reasoning this evening, thoughts, knowledge. We've gotten into a little bit of linguistics, not a whole lot, but a little bit. We've put some puzzle pieces together to form doctrinal conclusions, and I hope somebody in here enjoys that. But maybe you're saying, Pastor, that sounds good and it makes me feel like you know some things and it makes me feel like I might know a few more things. But remember 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. If all I have done tonight is send you with knowledge of a few more things, I may have laid the groundwork for some edification, but I've fallen short of actually edifying you. So allow me to edify you this evening. Of all that we have considered, this is the sum. And I said some of this last week because I got off on my notes a little bit, but you can hear it again. You have a God in heaven who loves you. You know he loves you because he sent his son to die for you. You know he loves you because he has given you of his spirit. Don't spend one minute of your Christian life thinking that God doesn't love you. That God is angry at you. That is why Jesus died. His anger fell on Jesus for you. Don't spend one minute of your life more than you have to in guilt or in shame. Jesus bore the wrath and despised the shame. Don't spend one more minute than you have to in sin. Because you have a father who loves you. And sent his son to die on the cross for you and his spirit to indwell you so that you may be free from sin. Trust the love of God toward you. Trust that God wants you to know him. Trust that God wants you to be right with him. And yes, that means you have some work to do. That means you have to humble yourself before the truths of God's word. That means you have to exercise faith when God says it's time to step. And you say, God, I don't know what that step is. I can't see that step. You're asking me to take a step and I don't know what's on the other side of that step. And he says, I know that's why I want you to take it because I want you to trust me. And you say, but God, can't you just let me peek around the corner and see what's on the other side of that step? And God says, no, I want you to take the step with the promise that around on the other side of that corner is everything that I've promised you. 
And that's not fun, and that's not easy. And yes, there are trials and tribulations in life, and nobody likes those, and they're difficult. And those are parts of the Christian life as well. But they all are overshadowed by this umbrella of the reality that what God is doing, He's doing because He wants me to know Him, because He wants me to be right with Him, and because He loves me. God is not standing in the heavens with one of those cords waiting to pull the trap door out from under us. God is not using us as His silly little playthings that He can just bounce around around whenever he wants and you know p- pick our legs off like boys do to grasshoppers that is not the god we serve and you know what god is not the kind of god have you ever seen one of those uh, of course you have they're, they're not around as much anymore but those claw machines with the little with the little you know stuffed animals and stuff in them those i don't like those things inside god is god is not a god is not one of those claw machines you look inside and you see a big old helping of forgiveness in there, of fellowship, of joy. That's, that's that great thing that you've been wanting, that, that, that relief from your shame, that relief from your guilt, that relief from your frustrations, that relief from your anxieties, and you see it in there, but there's a pane of glass between you and it, but then there's this claw. And so it takes all of your quarters and you're stuffing that thing full of quarters. You're giving it everything you got. And you stuff that thing full of quarters. And then it eats all of your quarters. And now you only have 30 seconds to get your forgiveness. And so you're moving that stick around as fast as you can to line it up to try to get that big old helping of forgiveness that's in there. And you line up that claw and you hit the big forgive me button. And that claw begins to work down. And as that claw goes down, it opens big and wide, unreasonably wide, right? There is no reason why that claw needs to get that wide. There's something going on with that claw because it's not supposed to get that wide. And so now it's unreasonably wide and it goes down there and then it starts to close and it's closing over two things. You're like, hey, maybe I'm going to get two. But wait, no, it's so big. You're not going to get either. And, and, then, and then the amazing thing about it is it doesn't really close all the way, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it wasn't as, it's not as closed now as it was when it was hanging up there. I can tell you that right now. And, and it doesn't really close all the way around, almost as if God intended that forgiveness to slip through that claw. And then you watch that claw your only hope for relationship and forgiveness and joy, and, and it misses. And then in order to add insult to injury, that empty claw moves over to that hole and opens again just to show you what you missed out on. That's not God. But you know what? A lot of Christians see God that way. A lot of Christians who have been taken in by some of the doctrines that we've already considered, plus a few more that we're going to get to later on in 1 John chapter 2 and 4, see God that way. That God is just up there playing games with us. That, that He is elusive, hard to find, hard to understand, hard to get, get a hold of. But then what does the Bible say? Well, number one, He's given us a really big book about Him. This is a lot of information about God. And then he says, if it were not enough that I gave you this entire book, when you accept Christ as your Savior, when you say, I'm in, when you say, I want Christ, when you say, I want that forgiveness, the Bible says that God takes his, uh, sends His Holy Spirit to indwell you and to teach you all things that He has commanded. Listen, folks, that is not a God trying to hide from you. That is not a God attempting to withhold from you. 
That is a God who loves you. That is a God who wants you to know him. And that is a God who wants you to be in fellowship with him. What did Jesus say in John chapter 6, verse 37? All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me. We were in John 6 this morning, weren't we? All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. What did he say in John 15, verse 16? Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. God has reached out to us in love. He has chosen us who are in Christ to bear fruit. He has ordained that our fruit should remain. He wants us to have life, and he wants us to have it more abundantly. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be wealthy. That doesn't mean you're going to be healthy. That doesn't mean you're going to be comfortable in this life. But it can mean, it will mean, if you follow that path, joy. And may we never forget it. I hope you're edified. That brings us to verse 2. Now, I have a lot more to say about verse 2 than this week will cover. We will talk more about verse 2 over the next two weeks, sort of. We'll, it'll be a, a launching point. But I want to introduce you to the flow of meaning this week. So we read in verse 2, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, the key word here is propitiation. Once again, a Greek word. It's unique and important. It's only used here in 1 John, nowhere else in the scriptures, and only used two times. It speaks of Jesus being the appeasement for our sin, that by Jesus comes this appeasement so that when we come to the Father, we come in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Son, we have standing before the Father. This is going to be our focus next week, so come back for that. But notice this as well. Jesus is not just the propitiation for our sins but also for the sins of the whole world. That's going to be our focus in two weeks. Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty, not just for all of those who will believe, but even for those who will go to their dying day shaking their fist at God. Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. And of course, in this are many implications. First, there's no name under heaven whereby we must be saved. No other savior, no other system, no other religion. Jesus is, as our brother quoted to us in French this evening, the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him, John 14, verse 6. Second, we learn that the work of Jesus Christ purchased forgiveness not only for the sins of we who are believers, but for the whole world. And that doesn't mean that every single person in this world will receive all the benefits of that purchase. Again, we'll talk about that later. But only the fact that Jesus has purchased this forgiveness for all men to be saved. And this becomes foundational. If we miss this point, not only are we going to misunderstand salvation, we're going to misunderstand larger portions of theology, but we're also going to have a hard time understanding a verse like Ephesians 4.32. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Or misunderstanding what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, 
when he calls us to love our enemies because the Lord sends, his, uh, the, he sends the sun to rise on the evil and the, the good and he sends his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Well, all of those things call us unto this idea that Jesus died for all men. But if we say, no, Jesus only died for some, well, then I only have to forgive some. I only have to love some. Because, I mean, Jesus only loved some. Jesus only forgave some, right? But if Jesus purchased the forgiveness of all men, then that net is cast to all men. It changes the way I understand things. And it makes a lot more sense when I go to those other passages of Scripture. We'll get there over these next few weeks. And so as we think through these things, these wonderful truths. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Thank God for that. Thank God that our standing before the Father does not depend upon us, but rather upon Jesus Christ the righteous. Thank God that he ever lives to intercede. And it is for this reason that we can, as we trust these principles, have confidence in Christ and have confidence in the Father's intentions toward us. And I brought you a little bit outside of that application, but let's just reel that back in as we close. The Father's intentions toward you. You serve a God who loves you, who wants you to know Him, who wants you to be in fellowship with Him, and who, for all of, all of, the, all of the things He has done for us, when we yield to those things, is eager and ready to respond to that yieldedness with joy. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.